Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you subscribe to The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, two longtime friends who have had this podcast since 1973. Yeah, that's how long. It was even before podcasts they were having this. These guys spent their whole life arguing with each other. And now we just record it and they go at it. They talk about everything pop culture. It is one of the most popular pop culture podcasts, especially valuable during Game of Thrones season. But uh, they'll argue about movies, music, TV, you name it. The Watch, one of the best pop culture podcasts on the internets. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a special Insecure Finale preview edition of Channel 33, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Hannah Georges, special projects editor at TheRinger.com. Which I've heard is a wonderful website to <laughs> consume all your internet content. Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan personally. We here at The Ringer love HBO's Insecure. We love talking about it. We love arguing about it. And one of my favorite people to do that with is joining me now. Uh, this is staff writer Allison Herman. Hello. Excited to argue. Hey, Allison. <laughs> Um, if you're not familiar with the show, Insecure is a show on HBO created by Issa Rae, who also stars in the show. It follows the lives of Issa, played by Issa Rae, and her best friend Molly, played by Yvonne Orji, uh, and a whole crew of other young, black, uh, successful, or and or struggling, uh, you know, 20, 30-somethings in L.A. Um, there are various hijinks related to relationships all sorts of fights on that front, but it also explores their friendships and work-life drama um, and just kind of little things that come up in the lives of Black millennials living in that particular space. It's really beautifully shot and kind of highlights the city and has sort of one of the more amazing soundtracks on TV right now. Issa Rae created the web series Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which was popular on YouTube from 2011 to 2013, the early 2010s, which brought her to the notice of the wider internet as well as the show business industry. And she eventually partnered with Larry Wilmore, who has a podcast on our own Ringer podcast network, Black on the Air. And they developed this series at HBO, which was a few years in the making you know, transitions from internet stardom to serious stardom can often be rocky, but as soon as Insecure debuted, it was instantly a hit and critically, both critically and commercially. It's been widely praised. It's been widely consumed and discussed on Twitter. <laughs> it's just been a really strong debut from a really welcome new voice in Hollywood. Absolutely. So I'm uh, excited about this season, excited about the finale, and really excited to jump into talking about it with you. One of the things we'd said we wanted to talk about is sort of how season two has changed from season one. And, you know, like Issa's glow up has been real, both Issa Rae and Issa D, the character. Um, and we've seen the cast change a little bit about this season. What have you been most excited about? Well, I think one of the most noticeable changes just in terms of the experience of watching the show was in advance, they announced that in addition to Issa Rae and Yvonne Orji, who play the central friendship duo of Issa and Molly, they promoted Amanda Seals and Natasha Rothwell, who were sort of recurring characters in the first season, to season regulars. Yes. And that's had the effect of transforming the show into a little more of an ensemble and not just even in this friendship group, which is now properly group, but also the big event at the end of last season was that Issa broke up with her live-in boyfriend of five years, Lawrence, 
I think it's been great for Lawrence, maybe not as a person, which we can discuss in a bit, but as a character to kind of literally leave the nest, go out on his own, have more things going on in his personal life that aren't involved in his relationship with Issa. And he is his own friends and coworkers and drama. And it's just made this show really rich and complex in a way that, you know, a second season show is free to do where a first show has to really work to establish the world and the core characters. The second show can kind of relax a little bit and spread out and ease into itself. Yeah, I think this season we've seen more of the characters grow into themselves a bit, um, whereas last season we kind of saw why they were in each other's worlds. And now we get a sense of, you know, who Molly is in the workplace, not just the fact that Molly kicks ass in the workplace, but what it means for her to be in that space and interact with that space. Um, And that's felt, that's just felt rich in a different way, just as you were saying. Um, I honestly think the standout human being in this season is absolutely Kelly, who's played by Natasha Rothwell, who also writes for the show. (laughs) Um, And I would love to spend a little bit of time just talking about her and what her ad libs bring to the show and just the kind of comic relief that is sometimes needed just desperately when the show gets a little heavy. Um, I'm very grateful for her every episode when she appears. Likewise. I mean, I actually interviewed Rothwell earlier in the season and in the after show that they do on HBO, which is wonderfully called Wine Town, you know, double entendre. (laughs) uh, Race has said that something like 40 to 50 percent of Rothwell's lines that make it into show are ad libs on set, which is really impressive, given that she also has a literal voice in the character as a writer. I've really liked Rothwell as a comedian for a while. There was a Netflix anthology sort of comedy special series called The Characters, where sketch comedians were kind of given 30 minutes to do whatever they want. And I remember watching her episode and thinking, wow, this person is so, she's a great performer. All these sketches are so sharply written and funny and interesting. And it was great to watch her on the show and have an increased presence in the season. But she's just so vital. And I mean, there's a moment at the episode four where a, sexually explicit act is performed on her in a <laughs> diner, which, you know, is one of the more outrageous sitcom moments, but it totally punctures, you know, that moment is otherwise kind of heavy because Issa is seeing an old flame that she hasn't seen in a while and has an uncertain relationship with. And it's just a way to like break the tension of the moment in a way that almost like took me maybe 30 seconds to figure out what was going on. But that was oh, one of the, uh, that was one same. of the season highlights for me. No, same. And I, I mean, I appreciate it. I just remember the first, you know, speaking to Rothwell's ad libs, just the first moment when I was like, oh, she's going to be funny and we're, I'm going to need to watch her and pay attention to her is in the first season. Um, I think I forget who asks her, you know, do you hear yourself? And she says, of course, I have a <laughs> podcast, uh, you know, and there's just this way that she's kind of like lighthearted and also kind of punctures not just the heavy moments, but the way that some of the char- other characters um, just think not necessarily so highly of themselves, but just like always about themselves. You know, she's this reminder that like other people exist both because she's there and around and also kind of recenters them. And I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. There's some great side eye. There's some great call outs. The most recent episode, one character has a dinner party for someone's birthday and Lawrence shows up with a date to a sit-down dinner party of the uh, friend he, of people who he only knows because they are friends with his longtime ex-girlfriend who is also present, which is just an absurd faux pas on like 17 different levels. Right. And the first thing she says is basically, oh, no, he didn't. And, you know, there are other scenes. I was re-watching some episodes before we recorded this podcast, but Issa's kind of talking about her breakup and how she's not, you know, maybe she'll take Lawrence back when that was never really a possibility, but that's Issa for you. And she right. goes, you know, 
remember, this guy was sitting on your couch for two years while you supported him. Like, you screwed up by cheating on him, which was ultimately what ended the relationship. But it was in, you know, the relationship was only on life support because he was messing up, too. And I think that's an important reminder to come from someone on screen. Right. And I think the way that she delivered that kind of brings in the reminder that it's not just that he wasn't working. It's that he wasn't fundamentally invested in their relationship either, right? Um, So I've just generally been impressed with her on the show and noticed how well she works and how well the ensemble works. Um, One of the things Allison noted is as in the summer as opposed to the fall, I think the kind of lightness and just the even even the way the show is filmed and the just sort of landscapey like panoramic views um, and the really like beautiful aspirational shots just feel nicer and feel less intense um, in the summer. Totally. I mean, personally, my viewing habits this summer have basically been something like watching Game of Thrones and Twin Peaks back to back, both of which are very intense, very loud, very dramatic shows. And not that Insecure can't be intense and dramatic, but it's just been such a pleasure all summer to kind of relax and sink myself into this world that, like you mentioned, is just so beautifully shot. Melina Matsukas, who's been a longtime music director for people, including Rihanna and Beyonce, is kind of the most assertive visual presence in the show and it really you feel it luxuriate in Los Angeles and also just parts of Los Angeles that you're not really used to seeing in TV I mean I feel like the cliche of LA in 2017 is like the same three square blocks of Silver Lake and this is set (laughs) like half in downtown LA and half in Inglewood which is in South LA one of the establishing shots of the entire series is of the forum I do think they as someone who is a recent transplant to Los Angeles they maybe don't make enough of the fact that the two main characters live like an hour and a half away from each other no they absolutely absolutely do not um and I say this as somebody who sort of grew up around the area and is now not there the show makes me miss LA it makes me miss um just what it's like to be in that space. It just feels like drinking like Prosecco, like on some roof in LA randomly in the summer. Like it just, that's what it feels like when you watch it, you know, and then there's a part of me that wants to well actually a little bit like, "Mm, I don't know if this would work. I feel like a great concept episode would just be like Issa stuck in traffic on like a speakerphone with Molly the whole time (laughs) (laughs) just to get a needed dose of realism. But as you mentioned before, part of this is aspirational. Like Issa is you know, Issa and Molly both are dressed to the nines in every scene and she has a hairstyle change and an outfit change with every scene. I'm sure if you looked up the pricing of some of it, it's not entirely realistic for an educational nonprofit worker. Not at all. But that's part of why you turn to shows like these. I mean, Sex and the City was also just absurd given what Carrie Bradshaw could afford on like a writer's salary. Yeah, I've been rewatching that lately and as a writer, just really upset with her for that. (laughs) You are not getting $400 heels. Absolutely. Um, But no, I mean, I do. I think that Molly's workplace attire this particular season um, has just really, you know, Molly has always been very pulled together, but it's been amazing to see her project the respect she wants and and she feels like she isn't getting in the workspace, partly via what she wears. Um, You know, she wears this amazing suit when she goes to the hockey game with her boss to try and kind of enter what she sees as the boys club and address the fact that she knows that her white male colleague is being paid more than her. 
And it's just, they've been telegraphing that really intelligently. Um, and I've appreciated the kind of depth that that's allowed in her character. And the fact that it wasn't confined to one sort of message episode in a way that like maybe a different world or something would have done it. Like the episode about Molly's, you know, pay gap. Yeah, I've actually really appreciated how Molly's work life as a subplot has been really evenly distributed over the season. And it's sort mm-hmm. of organically worked up to the place where she is now, where her coworker in Chicago, played by Lil Rel, who is amazing, sort of says, you know, if you're not valid, Valued, you can always look someplace else, take other meetings, maybe right. branch out and push yourself out of your comfort zone, which is something that Molly, as a character, isn't really comfortable with in either her right. professional or her personal life. And we've talked before about how one of the big improvements of the season has been not just increasing the number of characters who get screen time, but sort of deepening these characters with I really enjoyed the workplace subplots for not just Molly, but also Issa, right. which I think And also, it's been really smart about how your personal life can affect the way you conduct yourself in the workplace. Like, Issa's feeling really insecure and beaten down because of her breakup. And so when she's put in a sort of interesting ethical position, which is she works for an educational nonprofit called We Got Y'all. And she and her coworker, (laughs) Frida, who's kind of a wonderfully clueless white woman, uh, go to a school and they ask a vice principal for help. And the vice principal helps boost attendance. But it's an 80 percent Latino school. Almost all the new attendees are black. And in addition to that, the vice principal makes, like, very racist comments about walls and who should pay for them and all that stuff. It's worth noting that the principal is also black. You know, and it puts sort of, I think, you know, when that conflict begins to unfold, you see Issa interacting with Frida as though her concern, you know, her discomfort with the situation is entirely, like, out of hand or not, you know, not welcome or not fair, um, unwarranted. And sort of as the season develops, you see Issa kind of beginning to finally address that there are some things simmering here that it is incumbent upon her to actually discuss. And they hit a great balance with Frida as a character who continues to be hilarious. She's like, I stress watch the 13th and then I tweeted at Ava and then she liked my tweet, which is just, you know, a (laughs) wonderful succession of sentences. (laughs) But then they have her, oh my God, one of my favorite exchanges of the season is when she and Issa, you know, things come to a head and they're arguing about this. And, you know, Issa basically says black people can't be racist like that. And then Frida's like, well, the definition of racism is having the power to affect outcomes in a situation. That's literally what's happening here. And then Issa goes, oh, you're going to break out definitions on me (laughs) or something similar to that. And it's Mm -hmm. just a great, like, both of them are acting a little cluelessly, a little tactlessly, and they're both a little wrong and a little right. Right. And it's just a good, complex way. And like I mentioned, you know, Issa's feeling down. And so I think, you know, if she were in a different place in her life, she'd be more willing to stand up and right this wrong. But she kind of needs a win at work, even if it comes at sort of a moral price. And you see how she gets to that point via, like, all the things that are going on in her life, not just her job. Yeah, I think this season we've also seen a little bit about Lawrence's sort of triumphs and struggles in the workplace. Um, And it's been interesting to see him kind of deal with, I think, more subtle microaggressions than what we've seen on the show uh, in the past. Totally. I mean, last season, Lawrence basically didn't have a job. He was sitting on the couch working on this app. And then this season, he's kind of been pushed out of that zone by both literally moving out of Issa's house, but also he's working at this startup. He finally pitches his app and he gets it shut down in this hilariously passive aggressive way that I think is very recognizable to someone who has worked for bosses or or just interacted with someone period who like isn't fully comfortable saying no and so like 
just yeses you but doesn't actually give you anything in this really hilarious way. I really like the politics of that situation. Definitely. I mean, I think you see sort of his white bosses at this tech company clearly, you know, not knowing how to like tactfully let, you know, let a man who they think is like cool and adds a great vibe to the company down when it comes (laughs) to like his intellectual property, you know, like the thing that he believes in the thing that is what he believes to be the reason he was hired. Um, And sort of there's this tension there with this kind of like nice, like liberal racist tendency to not want to, you know, engage with a black person fully, which in this case would mean critiquing him, right? Yeah. Um, And like the soft racism of being like, you know, I don't want to tell you no, which is like, right. you know, if you're treating someone objectively as an employee, you should be able to give them the same feedback that you give everyone else. But instead, right. it's like, I have to treat you with kid gloves and like, right. you know, you're the special case when you really shouldn't be, you know, behaving towards someone in that way if you're being fully fair. Right. And which is not, you know, a, an advantage either because it means that he doesn't get to grow from that experience. Um which is another thing that sort of he grapples with and he kind of finds solace uh, in conversations with another coworker of color who (laughs) comes to have some more relevance later on. Oh, yes. I mean, I think also that's a good segue into Lawrence's personal life, which has been really interesting this season. Like, you see him forced to ask some hard questions of himself that he isn't fully willing to in terms of both his complicity in the breakup with Issa, but also the way he behaves in his relationship with the rebound, who's a bank teller named Tasha, who I think last season, you know, partially because that's how Lauren sees her, was kind of this escape hatch slash not fully realized person. And it was really great, I think, this season to use that relationship to be both more fair to Tasha and more critical of Lawrence and have Lawrence be called out for his very real failings by someone on screen. That was just vindicating to watch. So I think he'd, sk- he'd skated by in the sort of like, I'm not actively pursuing harmful behavior. I'm just not checking the behavior that I know is, you know, deep down is probably not the best. Um, to kind of have that decisive sort of, no, this is not okay speech come from somebody who is sort of clearly not in the wrong here uh, just felt amazing to watch. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the line with which she does it is just like instantly iconic. Yeah. You're a fuckboy who thinks he's a good dude is just yeah. like, yes. <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I've just been thinking about this season with him is that both both of these characters kind of struggle with self-reflection, both him and Issa. And it'll be really interesting to see whether the finale allows them an opportunity to take that on. That's actually something I think about a lot with Issa is that unlike a lot of cable characters who, you know, behave badly, like her problem isn't necessarily her active behavior. It's how passive she is. It's how unwilling or unable she is to articulate her emotions even to herself until like those emotions reach a crisis point and they bubble over in the form of something she can't necessarily take back. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's what we're seeing, you know, with Lawrence also is that passivity and the sort of inability to stop oneself from moving passively toward an unsavory outcome by actively stopping it. Um, So we've already jumped the gun a little bit and talked about the finale and some things that we're expecting to see. But coming up, um, I think we should jump in more fully to what we want to see, what we think we might and sort of what we're expecting from all of these characters and how it's going to wrap up. But first, let's take a quick break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about Black on the Air, hosted by the one and only, the great one, Larry Wilmore. Even though he's a Lakers fan, I still like him. I think he's talented. But he has all kinds of guests on, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Al Franken to Bernie Sanders. 
you name it, they're coming on, pop culture, politics, newsmakers. And then at, at the beginning of every podcast, Larry does a little riff about whatever is either sticking in his car or things that he's enjoying. Although he hasn't been enjoying much lately the way the world's going. But uh, Larry will riff on anything. And then he has guests on. It's great. If you liked everything else that he's done, comedy-wise, if you love this Comedy Central show, you will love this podcast. It is a medium that he has built for it. It's called Black on the Air, hosted by Larry Wilmore. Get it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. All right, so let's talk about this finality. What do you think is going to go on? Are these people actually going to face their own personal demons? Are they just going to keep being immature? What are we expecting? So I think the two major personal plot lines that we're going to see resolved in the finale in some way is Molly has entered into an extremely Mm ill-advised semi-relationship with her (laughs) childhood best friend who's in an open marriage, although the terms of that open relationship are never fully discussed or disclosed to either party. It's really unfair um, and bad. And then on Issa's part, she's kind of been experimenting with what she calls her hoe phase. And it seems, at least to an outside observer, that maybe it's not something that she's really suited for, but she feels like she's sort of supposed to do. Right. And that's involved, uh, you know, a Tinder date gone well, but then she speeds things up too much of the second date. Or, you know, the, this guy, Daniel, who is the person that she cheated on Lawrence with. Well, I guess we should probably talk about the specifics of that encounter that's made her so upset. But she's currently very mad at him. So maybe we should elaborate on that further. Yeah. So in what I found to be actually one of the more surprising and kind of off-kilter parts of this season, Issa, Kelly, Tiffany, and Molly, the friends, go to a sexpo. Um, and they, they spent a long time there. The scene feels really long. And they spent a lot of time discussing basically Black women's relationships sexually in general, but particularly as it uh, pertains to oral sex. And it just feel, you know, the episode felt odd and the conversation felt a little 1997. Um, But, you know, the sort of outcome there was that uh, they believe that black women feel uncomfortable or feel, you know, shy about it. Uh, So later in the episode, um, Issa goes to see Daniel, who she'd been, you know, sleeping with sort of on and off since she first cheated on Lawrence with him. Uh, and the episode ends <laughs> with her offering to give him a blowjob and him effectively finishing on her face. Uh, and Issa being <laughs> very extremely <upset>. distressed <laughs> about that. To the point of parody, I think. Yeah, I think I should concede that the actual mechanics of that scene were super funny. It's a great, you know, lewd and obscene physical comedy moment that you don't really get outside of HBO. But while I obviously can't speak to whether, you know, black women are have like an issue with oral sex, I do think there's a larger problem on this show with almost the inconsistency of characters' maturity in different parts of their lives, which I think is part of the point. But I've seen, like, a line I've seen on Twitter is, like, how are these people 30? Like, Molly is a corporate lawyer, which involves having a lot of control over your life and being very detail-oriented, and yet she's totally unable to recognize patterns of behavior in her non-professional life, which again is part of the point, but it's a little like, you know, when you're giving someone a blowjob, what do you expect to have happen? (laughs) Right. It's also like this was not like Issa's first ever blowjob, right? You know, and she had kind of said as much. 
Um, so she, you know, then proceeds to take it very personally that it ended in that way. Um, and kind of lashes out at Daniel. She leaves very dramatically. She calls an Uber pool and has to sit in the Uber pool with like a napkin on her eye. Like it's just great moment. <laughs> right. That's like an amazing still that like just, you know, incredible. Like it just it burst a lot of jokes. Um, and it was funny to watch. It just still felt odd. Um, I do think I th- that. Yeah, I think that brings up an issue or not even an issue, just a question I have about how we talk about this show, which is, you know, I think, like we said, the there are individual moments that are really funny and memeable and stick with you. And I think one of the things that sitcoms do is they just engineer the goings-on of a certain episode around those moments, and they right. don't necessarily lay the groundwork. And the thing that characterizes, I guess loosely you could call them prestige series, is that they're very focused on character work and realism and all that stuff. And I right. think there's almost a tension with whether Insecure wants to be more of just a funny sitcom that gives you moment-of-the-week things to talk about with your friends online and over the course of the week, or whether it wants to be a little more of a official commentary on what it means to be a young and single person, which I think requires at least a little bit more depth and nuance than we're seeing, although maybe that'll change in the finale. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see whether that'll happen. And I, I'm also cognizant of the fact that there is a particular burden and pressure on Issa Rae to do that in a way that may not be true of sort of white showrunners, um, because this is very much like the black millennial show that does this realist thing. Um it Again, actually, yeah, it reminds me of the reception around the first season of Master of None, which, while some of the criticisms I think were valid, I think a phenomenon that happens there is because it's forced to take on the burden of so many different things. It sometimes doesn't quite get the opportunity to just do what it wants to do on its own terms. and. Right. I think with Insecure, there's a little of both. I think there's both some issues with the show itself, and I think they're, you're right. There's totally a high burden of proof on it because, you know, it's basically the only show on HBO that's created by and starring a black woman, which is huge. Right, absolutely. And I think that makes me think about even the specific tension with this scene for me was that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, given to us as a weird hangup that Issa, the character, has. Like, it was very much framed as, like, here's the thing that black women worry about um, or the way in which, like, black women aren't as, like, freaky as white women. And, like, that's an actual, like, part of the dialogue that happened in this expo. And and a thing that, again, um, you know, Issa reiterated in the wind down. She said, like, it's a contentious topic for black women, especially as compared to black women, to white women, apologies, is how uh, she framed it. And, you know, when you sort of think about what that does for the dialogue around the episode, it changes how you can interact with what the character, what that scene meant for the character. Um, Yeah. And turning back to the show, I think that almost speaks to a general strength and weakness, which is I think Insecure is best when it is about these specific people at this specific time and place in their lives. And maybe it's not at its best when it's trying to speak towards the general state of a particular demographic. And I think, you know, maybe sometimes the showrunners feel a certain pressure because of that. But it's the best when, like most television, it's best when it's specific. Yeah, I'm pretty invested in seeing how Issa um, brings the dialogue with Daniel back around. Um, In the last episode, you saw they had another confrontation where he kind of apologized for what happened 
and then made a joke about it being, you know, about the two of them being even because she had, you know, played him or something. Like he made it a light, kind of lighthearted joke. And she took that to mean that what happened in the context of the blowjob was revenge or something. Uh, and it kind of blew it out of proportion again. Oh, God. Sorry. No pun intended. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing I would love to see going forward, and I'm not even sure if this is possible if the show wants to keep going, because in a lot of ways, this is a show about people who keep screwing up and how funny those screw ups are. But I would love to see Issa come to terms with Daniel and maybe not have a happy ending with him, but at least Mm. exit that relationship on amicable terms. Because one of the things we saw in the last episode is she and Lawrence finally had their big delayed post-breakup fight. And they both said some very hurtful things, some of which were fair and some of which were not. But I would love to see her figure out a way to achieve mature closure on at least one loose end in her life. Yeah. So if you haven't tuned in yet and don't know what we're talking about, here is a clip from that fight. It is very intense. And as Allison said, some things were said that are are fair and true and other things that are specifically intended to hurt the other person. Look, I want to explain. I I wouldn't have brought a partner if I knew. You're so full of shit. What? You couldn't wait to parade whoever the fuck in front of me and my friend. I'm not parading anybody. And then on some fuck shit, you block me? Wow. Okay, yeah, I blocked you. Because I was tired of seeing pictures of the nigga you fucked while we were together. I didn't post pictures. Nigga, I don't give a fuck who posted the pictures. Do you still fucking that nigga? Why do you even care? Of course, so you still fucking him. Who else did you fuck while we were together? Are you serious right now? I don't know what the fuck you was out here doing, apparently. Oh, what I'm doing? Yeah. What about what you're doing? Fucking me while you're with some bitch who works at your bank? And really, nigga, her? Because being some fake-ass music producer's jump-off is better? You know, I bet that nigga's a real fucking gentleman. He's got way more going on than woo-woo. Speaking of, what's up with that? Because I ain't getting no woo-woo's on my phone. Was it worth all that time I spent supporting your depressed ass? Probably not as much time as you spent being a fucking hoe. All right, so that hurt me to watch as a human being who was not part of that relationship in any capacity. What were your thoughts when it first aired? I mean, I think it's a very realistic depiction of how when you are that close to someone for that period of time, it gives you the capability to really hit them where it hurts. It reminded me of some fights I've had with people who were some of my best friends or, you know, romantic partners. And, you know, the dark side of knowing someone really well means that you can stab them with, like, you know, I know you really cared about this app and it failed and rubbing that in their face. Or I know you feel bad about how this relationship ended, so I'm going to stick the blame on you in this really aggressive way. And none of them are really the victor, and they both just come out feeling super terrible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting that sort of true to form, we see Lawrence leave that interaction and then continue what is perhaps the world's strangest date with his coworker. Uh, when they go, you know, to a bar and they're kind of canoodling at the end of the episode. And then what I found to be potentially a really generative scene is that Issa then leaves, goes home to the apartment that she once shared with Lawrence uh, and just kind of breaks everything. You wrote a really great piece about how that piece uh, (laughs) hints that she has not seen the iconic romantic comedy Two Can Play That Game. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting and uh and for Issa makes a lot of blunders, uh, and it's interesting that she goes and breaks all of her own stuff instead of, you know, perhaps breaking Lawrence's if she's feeling anger toward him. 
in a way that would be less messy for her to have to deal with. But um, I think, you know, aside from the strategy of it all, for her as a character, um, I do think it's important that she finally has some expression of like the things that she's genuinely feeling and isn't sort of dancing around them or asking Molly to not judge her for them by like saying Malibu, even though she's, you know, 29. Like she's finally kind of like, okay, like here's a thing that I'm feeling fully overcome by and I'm going to let that out for once. I totally agree. And I also think maybe a cool thing to have happen in the finale would be a great, like, physical expression of moving on is moving into a new space. Mm, I know yeah. personally, you know, when you're surrounded yeah. by new things in a of new course. environment, it's a great way to kind of kick yourself out of your old patterns. So it would be cool to see Issa do that. And, you know, you brought up her chemistry with Molly, and I think— a great part of the relationship is that they don't judge each other, but if they could hit on a more constructive way to say, you know, as a friend, I think I see you stuck in some old patterns and here's a way that you could exit them, that would be an awesome breakthrough, I think, in that relationship. Yeah, there was a particularly tender moment between the two of them um, in the restaurant where the dinner party that, you know, brought about all this chaos uh, took place where sort of Molly exits the bathroom where she'd had sex with her childhood friend even though his wife was in the other room. And, you know, Issa knows what the deal is because she had seen the friend leave the same bathroom beforehand. And she kind of, you know, like pulls Molly's hair back together a little bit and kind of, you know, straightens her out. And Molly removes Issa's sort of visible tag. And there's a way that they like interact with each other that just felt really tender and warm um, and just gentle in a way that I think we haven't seen with them yet. I mean, we've kind of gotten the texture of their friendship a little bit more this season than last season. Um, But I'm excited to see them do a little bit more with that and kind of genuinely support each other in a way that feels less, uh, less contentious, which it has a little bit at times. Yeah, and another almost Sex in the City-ish aspect of this show <laughs> is that it hasn't hit on it quite as explicitly as that show does, but, you know, Molly and Issa are a stronger and more enduring bond than the romantic adventures and misadventures right. in either of their lives. And one of the climaxes of last season was that Molly and Issa also got in a huge blow-up fight in addition to Issa and Lawrence, and they patched things over. And I think a great way for the finale to differentiate itself would be a different kind of breakthrough in that relationship. And I know Molly is looking to, you know, she just broke things off with this childhood friend because she finally realized that this is not healthy for either of them, but especially her. But as she looks forward to her professional life and maybe making a change there, I think it'd be great for her and Issa to arrive at a way to be candid but not brutal with each other. Yeah, because I think this show is fundamentally about them, you know, and it, it, obviously it's about Issa and it's about sort of her love life. But it, I think it works best in the way that you were saying earlier when it's sort of ensemble and you get the kind of nuance of the friendships, too. Um, and I'm really excited to see them kind of delve into that. And I hope that that happens. I think we also should probably shout out Yvonne Orji's performance, who has the best pronunciation of y'all fucked that I've ever heard on television. And I guess she's not technically a friend of the pod, but she is a friend of The Ringer because she was a guest on our Talk the Thrones live show, which was amazing. It was great being in the same room as her physically, even if we didn't interact. <laughs> yeah, I think that she – the way she curses on the show is amazing. Uh, so, you Which know, is genuinely... hilarious because apparently she doesn't swear in real life, even though yes. she's on a very sexually explicit and explicit explicit show right. in real life she is saving herself for marriage is very is religiously observant and Christian and does not swear which is just you would never be able to tell that by the quality of her performance on the series yeah she, I mean she's she's amazing 
One of the biggest things that I'm waiting for that I don't know if we'll see in the finale, but I really hope we do, or in season three, is whatever the secret is with Tiffany and her husband. Oh. Because they are clearly hiding something. Um, you know, Tiffany is a friend of Issa's who hosted the dinner party for her husband, um, which is where all this tension came to came to light uh, in the last episode. But Tiffany, they've kind of established her as this character who's a bit of a know-it-all. She's very bougie. She's super light-skinned, and they point that out often. And she's kind of the, like, quote-unquote, she's no, she's kind of a self-appointed marriage relationship guru type thing. She self-describes them as the perfect couple and then calls her the Barack to her Michelle. Yeah, it's (laughs) a lot. You know, in a way that's, like, clearly setting them up for some kind of fall. Um, She sort of mentioned very quickly shied away from um, having revealed earlier in the season that they were living apart for six months. Um, And I'm I'm just interested in seeing whether they bring to light what exactly that was about and what the deal is with them and why it would be interesting. I think there's something they're they're getting at a lot in terms of like characters who put up a particular facade uh, and Tiffany's feels like an obvious one to come down. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite recurring themes. And she's also someone who has said, oh, my God, she had this horrible line about hoping foreclosures go through so she and her husband can pick up a cheap house. And I would love to see some karmic comeuppance for that. Absolutely. And I I strongly suspect that we will. And I'm very, I'm very excited for that. Likewise. On that note, that is it for our Insecure Finale preview edition of Channel 33, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Um, And I'm going to remind you again that the finale airs at 11 p.m. Eastern on HBO this coming Sunday. My couch is nowhere near as nice as Issa's, but I will definitely be watching with Prosecco in hand. 